You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Welcome to Communication Mixdown. I'm Rima Rattan. In the middle of April, Australia's Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, attended a National Australian Christian Churches Conference in the Gold Coast. A video of his speech was broadcast by Vineyard Church and distributed by the Rationalist Society soon afterwards, leading to public discussions about the separation of church and state in Australia. Morrison is Australia's first Pentecostal Prime Minister. Today we have the second part of a discussion about the Prime Minister's religion and the role of religion in Australian politics more broadly. In the order you're about to hear from them, my guests are Wendy Mayer, a professor of Christianity who specialises in early Christianity and particularly social history, but also in contemporary religious violence and radicalisation. Dr Joanne Cruikshank, a historian of Christianity in Britain and Australia from the 18th century onwards. She now works on religion and race, particularly the role of Christianity in Australia in relation to Aboriginal missions. And Tanya Levin, who grew up in the church known as Hillsong and is the author of the 2007 book People in Glass Houses, an insider's story of a life in and out of Hillsong, which was re-released in 2015. This is an edited version of the second half of our conversation. You can listen to the first part by going to www.3cr.org.au forward slash communication mixdown. I asked Wendy Mayer about a paper she has published on morality and politics. That was in my earlier study of these kind of moral frames, and and but particularly the language of politicians and how la- the language of politicians can drive particular policies. So as we observed what was happening in the US under the Trump administration, where Donald Trump used a politics of fear, but he also embraced evangelical nationalists because he could see that his policies were very attractive to these very conservative, patriotic forms of, of Christianity. What's interesting to me is is that there has been, I think, an observable moral shift in Australian society in the sense that we've seen a hardening of divisions between people on various sides. We've seen certainly an increase in white supremacist, anti-immigrant rhetoric, and government policies under conservative governments around stop the boats and all of those kinds of agendas have been quite interesting to observe and clearly driven by a particular language that's used by the government, that's language of fear, that then hardens particular intuitive moral positions amongst Australian citizens. And it's really interesting when we have a country that is so culturally diverse to then have language around 
fairness and cheating that says that an illegal immigrant is somehow not, they're somehow cheating the system if they come by boat, as it were. So once you use language like that, that's the kind of stuff that triggers this hardening of these kinds of positions. And you see these larger macro shifts in society as a result of political language and frames. So it's a lot of it's to do about the framing of how politicians frame what they have to say. I find it fascinating that Scott Morrison um, often speaks like a thesaurus. He'll make a statement and then he'll use five different words that mean exactly the same thing in quite rapid, you know, I, I'm, I'm saying this, 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 and this, and it's all the same thing, but different ways of saying that. And that actually can really hammer home a particular frame for people who are listening to the media and watching politicians say these things. There's quite a lot of deep research that unpacks that kind of um, political rhetoric that can trigger things around loyalty. So groups that band together against other groups or that people feel betrayed because someone, they thought they were an insider and then they said something that now makes it clear that they're not part of that inside group. And again, you know, if we come back to probably what was interesting about Scott Morrison's speech to the Australian Council of Churches was that he was making it very clear that he's an insider, that he's one of them. Um, So by talking about the laying on of hands, by talking about the language of the evil one, he is making it very clear that he's not just a politician talking to a religious group like politicians frequently do, but he was actually the prime minister talking to the Australian Council of uh, Christian Churches as an ACC insider who is one of them. And that's, that's what makes it quite interesting um, to have him do that. You know, he only needs to use certain quite benign seeming language to just say, I'm one of you, because that's the language that everyone knows. How healthy is the public arena in terms of discussions about religion and politics? I think it depends very much on the uh, media you're talking about, medium you're talking about. I, I did a journalism major actually way back in the dark ages when I was a did my undergraduate degree. And I think even then it was something that was occasionally mentioned that that journalists often don't know very much about religion. And as a person who studies religion, reading journalism on religion can be very frustrating because it feels as though there's very little specialist not even specialist, a kind of general, good general knowledge about religion. And so kind of an inability to ask good questions about religion. I think often whether it's an unwarranted respect for religion, whether it's a discomfort, whether it's a sense of ignorance, I don't know. But I certainly think that Religion often only receives attention when something scandalous happens and then it's portrayed in in fairly undiscerning terms, I guess I would say. As Joanna said, it, it tends to come up in the media, usually when religion causes harm. And I think that's the problem with how religion is often portrayed, is that it's often the the aspects of religion that cause harm rather than the aspects of religion that that cause good. And One of my interesting things I've been reflecting on recently is that in the last census, for the first time, uh, people were not asked what religion do you belong to, but um, were allowed to say they had to nominate which religion they belong to or they could nominate no religion. But there was no category for I have a spiritual kind of aspect to my life, but it's not religion um, per se. And so there's this kind of 
very gray area between religion and, and, and what's spiritual in life. And I think if you talk to Australians about being spiritual, one of the arguments about the current generation of young people is that who are leaving organized religion in droves is because they're spiritual but not religious. So they would define themselves as having a spiritual sensibility but not being interested in religion because religion is this organized thing. So when we come back to what we were talking at the beginning around different forms of Christianities and different forms of Pentecostalisms, that's what they identify as religion rather than religion as a kind of sense of the religious or the sacred in the world. Tanya, the, the, what you were saying about the physicality of Pentecostalism, that sort of, it seems to kind of almost relate, doesn't it? There's kind of this visceral, there's an ecstasy about it that you don't associate with organised religion as such. Well, yeah, certainly not so often. So it, a large part of that is the music, so that really introduces, you know, a lot of emotion into the service. And then they've replaced prosperity theology a lot with a lot of kind of wellness and life coaching and, you know, being your best you, which is when you look at it equally as kind of self-obsessed as the pursuit of money. But, yeah, so, you know, you go away feeling, singing some good songs and having felt great about the messages you've heard about how great your life's going to be. So, you know, it's a win-win for everybody short term. What's a question you would ask the Prime Minister as a, as a historian of religion? To be honest, I don't have, I wouldn't have very high hopes of getting a straight answer to any question that I asked about the specifics of his religious belief. I actually would like to know some specific things like does he believe in hell and does he think that human-caused climate change is compatible with Christian belief? But I think that the question that I would ask him that perhaps would get an answer is why does he think that the church is good for society? Because he's specifically talked about church and churches being good for society. But, you know, that could mean a lot of things. And I would like to know what does he actually think are the benefits of church for Australian society? That's very, it's very Brian used to say that when he says, and he said, oh, you know, what this country needs is the church. You know, a, a preacher of old would have said what this country needs God, but he uses the language of Hillsong, which is church. They've almost eliminated God out of the language uh, and they really talk about, you know, what the church can do. So, you know, support your church and love your church. It's not, uh, it's not where a church has a salubrious history, this nation in particular. Well, that's it. I mean, that's everywhere. But it's, even some of the bigger preachers will still kind of refer to God. You've got to listen to God. But they seem to have really transformed the data to church. Be loyal to your church, you know, serve your church. That's a, that, you know, that to me really stands out as something that he got from, from Hillsong pastors and his own basically gay pastor, you know. A lot, of, a lot of store being put in church. And he doesn't say who's which what church, just the church which I guess in that context of his speech at the ACC would mean specifically, you know, the ACC church. He hardly thinks that what this country needs is the Catholic church. But, you know, it's that deliberate vague stuff again. There is an argument to be made for the value of religion in society and uh, all kinds of voluntary, non-governmental 
associations. But I suppose to me, a better understanding of what is it that he thinks that the church offers would help me to have a better understanding of what he thinks a good society is and whether that is something that people can agree on, even if they don't like the church, or whether that is a more exclusive view that is going to, you know, shut shut people out, uh, whether that's even something that he's thought about a lot. I, I think that that is an important thing to understand when someone is promoting the church, whether they are, what kind of church they're promoting and what they think it is that the church offers society. And as you say, given some of the ways that's gone horribly wrong, you need to have thought fairly carefully before you promote the extension of the church into society. Wendy, what, what, what would you ask the Prime Minister? Yeah, so my question for him would be, what does he mean that everyone is created in the image of God? So that was one thing he said in his speech that I thought was quite striking. Because often, and I'm, I don't want to generalize here because it's probably not all forms of Pentecostalism, but certainly the more conservative forms of Pentecostalism tend to be quite hostile um, towards LGBTQ individuals. And so they would manifestly not say that they were all created in the image of God. In fact, they would believe that the image of God is a very binary male-female ordered creation that is not actually fully equal. And that kind of literalist reading of scripture that tends to espouse that kind of theological view can be quite problematic and produce quite problematic behaviors. And so recently in Victorian Parliament, we've seen the criminalization of gay conversion therapy. And gay conversion therapy has traditionally come out of reasonably conservative forms of evangelical Christianity for starters, but not just Christianity, but actually, ironically, also um, Hinduism and Buddhism and and other religions where their conservative aspects uh, are in agreement over that kind of understanding of of what is normal in human beings and and human behavior and human identity. So yeah, that that's a really important question for me: is what does he mean by people being created in the image of God? Because that language itself has been weaponized by churches in quite problematic ways. And at the moment, there's a research project that I'm conducting with a professor at Flinders University, where we're looking at spiritual abuse in the church and how scripture and, and theological beliefs have been used both to promote domestic violence in terms of male perpetration, or also um, the more positive forms of Christianity that are much more uh, loving and, and gracious and peace-promoting um, as ways of helping men to recover from more fundamentalist ways of viewing and justifying their behaviour. So, yeah, there's that, that whole image of God thing is quite, quite striking and quite interesting. Luciano and Georgia Keats, supported by the Australian Queer Archive, present Queer Ways, retracing Melbourne's queer footprint. Queerways is a community art project that maps the queer history of Melbourne, combining our community's stories and voices, past and present, into a permanent, interactive record of being queer in Melbourne. Visit www.queerways.melbourne now to record your story in queer history and explore our city's untold history. Queerways, a 3CR supporter.
You're listening to Communication Mixdown on Community Radio 3CR. And I'm talking about religion and politics in Australia with historians Wendy Mayer and Joanne Cruikshank. Tanya Levin, the author of People in Glass Houses, an inside story of a life in and out of Hillsong, who was with us earlier, had to leave at this point in our discussion. But you can hear her thoughts in the first part of this show and in the previous episode of this program by going to www.3cr.org.au forward slash communication mixdown. I asked Wendy Mayer how government policy may be influenced by the Prime Minister Scott Morrison's Pentecostalism. The pastor she mentions in her response is Brian Houston, whom Tanya mentioned earlier in the program. This interview was recorded some weeks ago, and in the past week, Houston has been charged by police over allegedly concealing information about child sexual abuse. Houston, whom Morrison named as one of the three church leaders who most shaped his commitment to his faith during his maiden speech in Parliament in 2008, has been abroad for several months despite Australia's border being closed. And look, that's a really interesting question for me because he was very clear that his pastor was there attending that assembly and that he defers to his pastor. He um, at one stage wanted to take him across with him to the US to meet with Donald Trump on uh, one particular mission. I think it was last year or the year before and um, was told that, that that wasn't appropriate. But for a prime minister to even think that taking their pastor with them as a chaplain or advisor is, is saying that there is a closer relationship than probably we've ever seen before between a prime minister and his spiritual advisor, if that makes sense, which which becomes quite both intriguing and I think problematic in, in all sorts of ways that I suspect that the prime minister is unaware of. The same as when he talked about laying on hands when he was, you know, greeting survivors of disasters. And I'm thinking to myself, anybody who works in spiritual care space knows that it's actually unethical to pray over someone, let alone be doing it, well, to do it without their consent, essentially, or knowledge, because uh, that person might be quite hostile to that kind of, I mean, it's, it's perfectly okay for politicians together to have prayer breakfasts and to pray for the nation and to pray for each other and their work in government. That's in no way compromising anyone's individual rights that's and how you what you pray in private is perfectly all right but to do that in a way when someone feels that they're being greeted by the prime minister who's expressing some aspect of care as the prime minister of australia it then becomes unethical to do that to to be adding that extra kind of extra dimension yeah i think i would say two things one is that Part of what happened at the speech was, I think, a very clear indication about his relationship with other Pentecostals in Parliament and in power. So to me, an individual parliamentarian being influenced by their religious beliefs is one thing because they get voted in and out like everybody else and they have to answer to their electorate and if their electorate thinks that they're making decisions on the basis of their religious beliefs too much, then they'll quite sure politicians who share religious beliefs, share religious practice. One issue is the the influence that that has on policy. And that is why I would like to ask about the relationship between Scott Morrison's religious beliefs and his views on climate change, because I actually think that's highly relevant. But I think the other issue is that, in fact, any group of people with a kind of shared allegiance like that 
wielding power does actually lock other people out and it can really exactly you would call that identity politics to me that is almost more the concern i mean there is in terms of policy i would sort of suspect that you know rupert murdoch has more influence on Australian policy than uh, Brian Houston does. And I'm actually a lot more worried about Rupert Murdoch's influence. But I think the formation of those kinds of um, subcultures in power, particularly given the relationship to gender politics, that certainly is a matter of concern to me. I think we should be concerned about it. Australia does seem more secular than the US, but certainly even more than the UK. Would you say that's true, Joanna? Yeah, I mean, in terms of the arrangement, I guess, the, the relationship between church and state that was set up at uh, after invasion, it, it was, you know, by the 1830s, the decision was really taken to treat the major Christian denominations kind of equally. So rather than having a an established church the way that, you know, they'd had back in England, the, the colonists decided to have this more of a pluralist arrangement in the sense that the basically the four major Christian denominations were all offered funding. So that's quite different from both the UK and a lot of the European nations where you for either still or, or for a long time had a an established church or the US where you get this in some ways more marked distinction of church and state, you know, the ban on prayer in schools, that kind of thing. But on the other hand, you get a much, much um, more, I think, intense religiosity amongst the population. And, And I think part of what has happened in Australia is that because the relationship between church and state hasn't been as clearly defined as it has in either the US or in many of the European nations, the the influence of religion has been more subtle and and actually more difficult to to track and define. Um, And I think that's part of the reason why Australia is both a very Christian country. I think if you're not a Christian, then Australia seems very Christian. I don't know, but that's my impression. Whereas I think a lot of Christians feel that Australia is very secular and and people often make the argument, well, this is a secular country. We're meant to be a secular country, so we shouldn't have chaplains in schools. But I mean, Australia really is not a secular country. We have a a section of the constitution that basically says that the government can't make laws for or against religion. It's a kind of hands-off situation. And I think that actually means that religion has informal but very real influence in a whole lot of areas of life. Christianity has, I should say, not religion, Christianity. Some comments, Wendy, on how the difference between believers and non-believers has become more important in the last 20 years. So it's an interesting question because in some ways what Joanna was saying is correct, that it's it's kind of Christianity and not Christianity um, that has still still drives certain things, even though there's this perception as between believers and non-believers. There's still people in Australia who have some kind of Christian influence in their lives uh, who will still claim that if you threaten something, particularly with immigrant groups from other religious backgrounds who start to influence Australian society, particularly, you know, this perception that Islam is an evil that needs to be combated, 
both politicians and a lot of Australians who would not otherwise consider themselves religion will still talk about Christian values and that this is a threat to Christian values. So that even if they don't consider themselves to be religious, they'll still want certain things that are perceived to be Christian values to be upheld in Australian society and in politics. And I find that quite fascinating. And that prime ministers have done the same thing, that they will use that language in parliament sometimes when when there's this kind of idea that there's a threat from something else that's come into the community. I'm not entirely sure it is about believers and non-believers, but it's about values, what people perceive to be core Australian values. And in the end, they come down to what are perceived to be traditional Christian values. And and again, that's that question that Joanna wanted to ask Scott Morrison. It's like, so what do you really mean that this is good for Australian society? Because I assume that they mean things like caring for others and the fact that not just Christianity, but other religions too have traditionally been very um, charity oriented um, so that they tend to run a lot of care organisations that do a lot of good in society, which is why I find it fascinating that, the, again, the Australian Bureau of Statistics is starting to create its own problem because the ABS statistics actually drive funding for private schools and for charitable organisations on the assumption that, you know, religions do play a role in Australian society. So if you start having everyone claiming to be have no religion, then... It'll be interesting to see what happens to a lot of the charitable organisations that are fundamentally religious-based because their religion says um, care for others. I mean, Islam being one of the most, like, when I think about, yeah. you know, what would happen if there was a Islamic prime minister who said things like Morrison said? If we had a Muslim prime minister who was openly practising, there would be a deep amount of hostility, I suspect, and deep suspicion. And probably that person would be stigmatised by their religion and not viewed as an impartial political agent in Australian society. So because of misconceptions about conservative forms of Islam, which and the connection in Islamic faith between Islam doctrine and law and, and how that drives ideas of political entities, yeah, it would be very problematic. And yet somehow Christianity is somehow seen separate from that. And yet, again, as Joanna pointed out earlier, there are all sorts of nationalistic behaviours um, that have been quite problematic, particularly in terms of colonialization and in countries like Africa and, and other parts of the world, where a lot of violence and other things have been perpetrated in the, because of that very strong connection between the political ideology and kind of Christian ideas of mission. Certainly what we know is that if Australia is based on Christian values, then invasion is a Christian value, right? Can I just say something about that? Because I, that, I suppose what I was thinking was if, if you look at federation, which is, you know, a, a long time after kind of formal invasion, but if you look at federation and the speeches that, you know, the, the movement to federation, the act of federation, and then the, the ways in which the Australian parliament began to legislate, you would say that the founding ideology of the nation is white supremacy. That is what the parliament makes laws about. When, once it gets going, it doesn't make laws about Christianity. It makes laws about whiteness and trying to promote and preserve um, Australia as a white nation. And I think that the relationship between religion and race 
is actually really critical. A a lot of the use of Christianity in political terms is really as a cover for, I think, racist dog whistling. And I also think that's often what the identity politics language is about. But I will say that's given that Pentecostalism now is far stronger amongst people of colour than it is amongst white people if we talk about it in global terms. And in fact, now Christianity, I mean, the the average Christian now is a Nigerian woman. So I think there is also a reckoning coming for Christianity in terms of that connection between Christianity and white supremacy. And I think that will Australians will have to reckon with that sooner or later as well. That was Dr. Joanne Cruikshank, Senior Lecturer in History at Deakin University. You also heard from Professor Wendy Mayer from Australian Lutheran College and earlier Tanya Levin, author of People in Glass Houses, an insider's story of a life in and out of Hillsong. Thank you for joining us. You can listen to the first part of our discussion by going to www.3cr.org.au forward slash communication mixdown. We're going out tonight with Nirvana's cover version of Jesus Don't Want Me for a Sunbeam. Some things are not made
listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.